Father, we ask that you bless both the reading and the preaching of your word, that we might listen to you, that we might learn how you would have us to live, and also what you would have us to believe concerning your son, that we might trust not in our own works, but in his works to save us. I pray that you would help us and assist us with all these things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Starting at verse 17, the focus of our text today was a flashback. Jumping back in time to see what troubled Herod's conscience. Herod had this assumption that Jesus, who was working miraculous powers, must have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that's kind of an odd thing, as I mentioned last week. That's a really odd thing because John the Baptist never performed a miracle. However, they believed in ghosts. They believed in people coming back from the dead with supernatural powers. And Herod was a superstitious man who believed such things. And before we get too carried away here and say, oh, that's just the past, people who believe in ghosts and people coming back from the dead, well, I'll, I'll just challenge you at some point to even ask the most ardent atheists if they believe in ghosts. And if you ask your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people out in this community, you'd be probably shocked with the kind of answers that you'll get to that question. But the question I had when reading this this week, and the question that kind of lead, led me down this path is, why here? Why does John, or rather Mark, John Mark, I guess I could say either way, why does Mark put this passage here? Chronologically, we just said it's a flashback. It's something that Herod did in the past. So he could have really put it anywhere. And not only that, but maybe you're thinking, well, it's, this is just this point in the narrative, and it's Mark is supplying some historical background information for why Herod thought that Jesus would be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And this makes sense, and this is definitely part of the reason for why, why uh, Mark puts in mo a lot of details in his book, in his gospel account. Mark is writing to persecuted Romans who are undergoing the wrath of Caesar, who's trying to kill Christians, and they probably had no clue about the history of Palestine, no clue about the geography, no clue about people like John the Baptist, and they would be needed they would need to have all this information informed for them, which is pretty helpful for us because we live a lot farther away than they did, even if they lived a little bit closer in time. We have 6,000 miles of distance, and most of us, including myself, have never visited Israel, and we're 2,000 years removed. So we're pretty thankful that God has, in his providence, sought to supply us with a gospel that gives us all the little nitty-gritty background text. But I would like to suggest to you there's another reason. Because background information can be inserted anywhere. Mark could have just inserted it at the beginning of his gospel when he was already talking about John the Baptist. Verse chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, he introduced John the Baptist's ministry. 
He was just before Jesus's ministry in verse 13 imprisoned. And Mark could have just slipped it in there that Herod murdered him and give us all the background information we need. So why here? Well, we have this same thing that's going to come up time and time again of this sandwiching technique that Mark has. Starting in verse 7, he introduced the apostles who are being given Jesus's message and Jesus's power. They go out and they have a very successful mission. And it's said about their mission in verse 12 that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They sent and they went out about a mission of preaching repentance and that the kingdom of God is near. John the Baptist, we know from the very beginning, preached a baptism of repentance. Jesus's message, when it's summarized in the very beginning of Mark's gospel in verses 14 and 15, Jesus's message is summarized as repent for the kingdom of God is near. The time is fulfilled. And in the midst of this, this short, really, introduction of the apostles' mission, preaching repentance, we have inserted Herod's response. And I did not read this, but the very next verse, we stopped at verse 29. Verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So you see that this story is right in the center of that historical account of the apostles going out. You see, there's a connecting thematic connection here, not just a historical one. And it's the preaching of repentance. And if you were a Roman who's being persecuted and seeing that the apostles went out and when they had Jesus's message, when they preached repentance, they were successful. They saw people convert. They saw people following Jesus. It's important to realize that success is not termed and defined by how many people follow. The definition of success for the Christian is always faithfulness. And what we see in our text here is the preaching of repentance is a dangerous calling, or as I titled it, the danger of preaching repentance. I think I've already mentioned one time before, and this has stuck out to me, that the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. And maybe that doesn't stick as well for you, but it sticks well for me, especially when I talk about it with my wife and she says to me, well, I don't want you to die. But why? Why is it that the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. What kinds of things would a preacher say that would want someone to murder them? Historically, this has been the case. Not just preachers, but Christians in general have been persecuted for a reason. It's not because of how kind we are. It's not because of the love that we have for our neighbor and the world. It's not because we make good neighbors who are good citizens, who obey the laws of the land. The reason why preachers today don't want to be killed is because they're not preaching repentance of sin. And the reason why your neighbor, if they are to get angry with you, it's not because 
of how kind you are, it's because you point out sin. And when you point out sin to sinners, it offends them. It shocks them. It makes them angry. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, in summarizing this, I think it's really important here, just to start off here, to say that repentance unto life, this is chapter 15, paragraph 1, if you want the reference. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, a doctrine whereof that is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Why? Well, because even though, this is paragraph three, although repentance is not to be rested in as a satisfaction for sin, and though, although, in my paraphrase, although repentance does not earn you salvation, it's told in such stark terms that it's then told to us in such a way that it is of such necessity to all sinners that they are to repent that none may expect pardon without it. We call sinners to turn from their sins and to turn to the living God and entrust their lives to them. But I don't think we have really gotten to what makes preaching repentance so dangerous. Otherwise, we could just wrap it up right now. As we look at our text, we'll see that it's dangerous because of who we offend. It's dangerous because sin dominates the lives of unbelievers. And it's dangerous, especially for those who do not repent, because of a hard, unrepentant heart. And if we just look at the very beginning, we get to start to see this, the danger of who we offend. Who does John choose to offend? Well, he chooses to offend Herod. You see, Christians offend a lot of different people by preaching against sin. But not everyone has the power to do something about it. Most of the time when we call out people for their sins, they get angry and storm off. Or they might get offended and cause some trouble. But historically, there's a reason why there's one particular class of people that has murdered Christians more than any other. It's the government. Because God gave and armed the government with the power of the sword, meant to execute justice, but it's often wielded in other directions by cruel and wicked men. Let's look at verse 17. For it was Herod, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, if you're familiar with your New Testament, you'll read that there's a lot of different Herods. There's Herod the Great, who massacred all the children under two years of age when he heard that the Messiah might have been born in Bethlehem. We see it of this Herod, who actually assists with Pilate later on in the Gospel of Luke to send him off, or to send him off to Pilate, because really, this was Herod's domain. He's the one who was authorized over the region of Galilee. 
And there's also in the book of Acts, another Herod who scoffs and mocks God and receives the praise as if he is a God and is judged in the book of Acts. You see, there seems to be something about this family, a character trait that makes them corrupt, that their family trait, something that seems to mark all the different Herods, is that they reject God's people, they reject his God, and they reject his ways. And Herod here is called out for a pretty gross sin. First of all, it's kind of interesting to see, and it's kind of an affirmation of our faith when we read different external historical documents that describe the exact same event. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish apologist who wrote against Christians, writes about Herod Antiochus, the guy who's in our text. And he informs us, actually, we don't get uh, Herodias' daughter's name, but we learn from Josephus that his, her name is Solomon, or it looks like salmon almost, Salome. And Salome, in this text, is a princess. And we learn also that this union, John points out that Herodias was his brother Philip's wife, that here Herodias was married to another man, but also Herod divorced his wife so that he could marry Herodias. So we first have adultery, two people leaving their spouse, forsaking their first husband, their first wife. We see that Herod's doing this not against just any individual, but he's doing it against his own brother, which Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 tells us that's incestuous. So this is an adulterous, incestuous relationship. And to add insult to injury, what's Herodias' name? Herodias. She's part of the same family. Herodias is Herod's niece. This is a gross sin. And really, all the details of this text, if we really look at it, can cause us to be quite uncomfortable. And sin should be like that, by the way. There's a grossness to sin. And while we might be able to read and recognize Herod's sin and see the grossness of it, we have to realize that before a holy God, all of our sins are gross to him. Different in degrees, but we are all falling short of God's glory. And the reason why Herod gets offended is not because he likes John's preaching, because we learn that Herod listened to John, and he listened gladly. He was excited about listening to this preacher, and even though he offended him, he enjoyed his preaching. But what got to him was really, and I think the whole instigator of this conflict is Herodias. We're told in verse 19 that it's actually Herodias who held a grudge against John. She holds a grudge against John, and she wants to murder him, but she does not have the power to do so. Instead, she has to get her husband, who does have the power of the sword, to accomplish her ends. It's, I think there's a common saying this, that there's nothing like a woman's, the fury of a woman's scorn. That's what John's suffering from. But we need to not miss 
about why Herod and why Herodias get so upset with John the Baptist. John the Baptist did, uh, Herod did imprison John. He was upset about the offense. He wasn't ready to kill him because he recognized and knew for a fact that he was a holy and righteous man. So he wasn't ready to kill him, but he was ready to get rid of him. And we learn in Luke chapter 13 that Herod's going to do the same thing to Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to see his miracles. But when he hears about all the power and the miraculous works he's doing, Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees trying to shoo Jesus away say, you know Herod's out to kill you, right? Herod's looking that he might kill you. What is the point of offense? Why We know who's offended. It's Herod and Herodias. But what is the point of offense? The power of God's word is pretty remarkable. One of the things that it has the power to do is to cut through and to convict us of sin, our sin, and God's righteousness. You know, John the Baptist really could have been a lot more strategic here. He could have talked about, in generalities, the sin of incest and how it's bad. If anyone does it, you know, I'm not going to point any fingers. That adultery is wrong. That a divorce is wrong. That sin in general is wrong. But, you know, speaking in such generalities offends nobody. Everyone recognizes there's sin out in the world. Everyone knows that whether it's you're attributing it to corporations who have evil motives, the elites in society who are trying to reshape the world, or the government, or systems. It's funny how everyone locates sin in the world, but they don't seem to recognize that governments have people in them that corporations are made up of human beings, that the elites are people just like me and you. You see, the problem of sin is not a problem that is this abstract problem. It's not this thing that we can generalize. It's a problem of the sinful human heart. When we look at sin in the world, we are the problem. We might not have the power to cause as much damage as a Herod or a Hitler or a Pilate. But we have the same root, the same poison, the same deadness in our sins by nature that possesses all the problems of the world. And notice how he does it. Because here I would probably be knowing my people please yourself, I would not have, I would have been the person to speak in generalities. So what gets John in trouble though, is what he says in verse 18. The offense to Herod, what causes her to hold a grudge is because he says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Most people are okay with speaking in generalities. But once you target an individual and say that they have a sin in their life that caused that God hates, 
that puts them in enmity with God, get ready for a fight. You're going to upset someone. You could be Mr. Rogers and word it in the kindest, softest possible way. But what offends Herodias and gets under her skin, which seems to threaten to break up the marriage that has put her in an upper position in society, is not John the Baptist's tone. It's his words. He speaks the truth. John the Baptist was called to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah, to give a baptism of repentance, telling everyone to turn from their sin. And guess what? That everyone included Herod. And today, our mission to all the ends of the world, no one is exempt. And because I don't want to be political and I don't want to be misunderstood, I'm not going to go through all the different individuals that we should call out for their sin. But we should be willing to call everyone's sin. We should not be cowards about this. We should be able to look at Republicans. We should be able to look at Democrats. We should be able to look at Libertarians. We should look at all over the world. We should be able to look at our neighbor. And when they do something that's morally depraved, we should call them out by name. We should be willing to do that. This is why pastors aren't being killed today. Because they don't, they don't want to raise and target a specific individual for sin. And notice here that what gets John into trouble is not that he's criticizing a specific political policy. He's not saying that Herod's policy is leading to some certain result that he's showing via application of God's word that this particular thing, policy, is wrong. No, he cuts to the heart of the matter, and he deals with the morality of his sin. That does not mean that there can't be immoral policies. But what we're called to do as the church of Jesus Christ, whoever commits the sin, whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden, whether it's the FBI or whether it's a corporation, we should be willing to name them by name and call out their sin. And I, would, I was kind of thinking earlier this week that I wanted to kind of camp out here and look at this in detail and take this bold stand, but I think that I'm going to take some time to read more about this topic and kind of look at this, uh, look at this relationship between Christians and government, and what does that look like to come into conflict? I think that it might be best and wisest for me just to keep going through Mark for now, though, and that to reserve that for a time where I can have inter interactions, because the sad thing is, is that Whatever choices that I choose to include as my examples and whichever ones I include to not will be interpreted politically because that's where we're at in society. So it might be more beneficial to reserve that for a time where I can have some interaction because my goal is to be like John the Baptist, to call out sin where I see it. And that's what we're all called to do. The danger 
is in whom we offend. And the reason why the danger is in who we offend is because it's mixed with another aspect. The danger of, that comes from those who are dominated by their sin. The danger, and this is that second point, the danger of being dominated by sin. This danger of being dominated by sin is shown when we look at the opportunity that Herodias takes. It's Herodias' plan, by the way, to murder John the Baptist. She finds an opportunity. Verse 21, another time is a good timing. She finds a good time in which she can execute, literally, I guess double entendre is meant there, or pun intended, execute her plan to murder John the Baptist. And she finds it on Herod's birthday. When he has not all of his friends in town, but that word there, he has at his bank banquets, megaston. You hear that mega word. These are the leading men of Herod's court. This is his, this is the political realm. He not only has that, but he also has literally, here we have a good translation, military commanders. The literal word there is those who lead a thousand soldiers. The military and lastly, he has the leading men of Galilee, the protos of Galilee, the first ones. He has the local aristocracy in town. So he has his cabinet. He has his military advisors. He has the head of the Navy, the head of uh, the Air Force and Marines and I guess space forts. He has also the Bill Gates of the world, all located in his room for his birthday. And some of the details of this, and we're not going to go too far into this, but this dance that Herodias does before a large group of men that I probably don't have to inform you that there's a lot of drinking involved and that Herod, uh, Herod, Herod had these sorts of parties, not all the time, but he had them frequent enough that we know what they look like and what goes on at those parties. There's lewdness here. This is a gross situation, groveling over this young woman. And she knows it. She gets him sent by her mother for what she doesn't know, the reason, sent in to seduce these men gets him drunk, and then he makes this lavish vow and this oath. And she goes in, and she asks for a rather disgusting request. She wants John the Baptist's head on a platter that she can deliver to her mom. It's pretty gross. Besides the murder, besides the adultery, besides the incest, this is absolutely disgusting. And Herod here, we're told, succumbs. Even though he was exceedingly sorry, he was sorry because he knew he was manipulated. You know, Herodias knows something that we oftentimes seem to forget. That sin does not usually travel alone. That the same person who's enslaved and dominated by his lust to leave his wife 
to go into an incestuous relationship dominated by sexual sin is the same type of person who's enslaved by all their sin. And even if Herod did not want to kill John the Baptist, knowing who he was, he did end up getting what he wanted. He, she got to keep as a gift on a platter the head of John the Baptist. She got what she wanted, and Herod got what he wanted. He got to keep his pride in front of those he respected. That's another thing about sin, isn't it? When are you most prone to fall? Is it not when you're around your coworkers who think highly of you and you're about to reveal to them that you think something like homosexuality is wrong or that getting drunk at parties is wrong? Isn't it at those moments when you're around those who you respect and who you like that they like you that those are the times that you're most vulnerable to fall? Dear Christian, beware of those moments. Be rare of the values that they espouse, those that you keep as your friends, your close friends. It's a dangerous thing to have friends with a totally different moral structure. We should have unbelieving friends, but we should be willing to engage with them, being willing to call sin, sin, and that includes Christian friends too. And we need to have the moral fortitude and courage to do what is right, no matter what the cost. Because the danger of being dominated by sin is so dangerous because that domination soon turns in our lives into a hard, unrepentant heart. This third point, the danger of a hard, unrepentant heart. King Herod who was really a tetrarch, but this was just a popular term for what Herod was, he sent his executioner with his orders. That word there only really occurs here once, and it's a Roman loan word. He sent out his, the word there could be spy. It's really his right man, his right hand guy who will do whatever he tells him, do his dirty work, and the dirty work that happens to be is to kill John the Baptist. This is why I think it's so important that when we walk away from this text, you might think, oh, poor Herod. He was manipulated into killing him, and now he's struggling with this guilty conscience. But when we read the gospel, we realize that his sense of alarm, for however long it lasted, it didn't last for too long. For as I already said in Luke 13, verses 31 and 32, he all, he's trying to kill Jesus. And when he finally gets to meet Jesus, see this miracle worker, and he's getting ready, he wants to be amused by him in Luke 23, verse 8. Jesus doesn't say a word to him. And the real Herod's colors are shown. He ridicules Jesus. He mocks him. He dresses him up in beautiful clothing as this supposed king and sends him to Pilate to be murdered. This sin, being dominated by sin, 
even though it seems like he had a tender conscience at first, soon became a hard, unrepentant heart that succumbed to the peer pressure and, con and was committed the worst of crimes, murder. And you know, the longer that we suppress our conscience, the longer that we allow that sin to flourish in, the con in our back closet, unrepented of, we see this same sort of effect happening in our own lives, even as Christians, that when we don't seek to kill our sin, it ends up killing us. The same thing that, John, that Herod did, rather, to the forerunner of the Messiah, he ended up doing to the Messiah himself. And the reality is, is that the danger of an unrepentant heart is not just dangerous for us. It's most dangerous for them. Christ himself and every Christian who follows Christ, they are in danger because they preach the same message of repentance, telling individuals, not just speaking in vague generalities, to turn from sin. We are likely to endure, depending on what time in history we are in, depending on how the government feels towards Christians, we're likely to suffer the same fate. This is another reason why we should be involved in politics as Christians. Maybe not as the church advocating for specific political policies, but we should be wise enough to know that bad governments murder Christians. It's always been that way. Bad Governments in the Old Testament murdered the prophets, murdered those who do good. And there's nothing wrong with getting involved and seeking to make sure that our government doesn't turn against us and seek to murder us. But those who are really in danger are not us. Because for us, the sting of death has been removed Everyone is under the curse of death. Everyone sins and has fallen under God's judgment. But only the follower of Jesus Christ has forgiveness of their sins. The difference between David and Herod is not the level of their sin. Both committed gross immorality. The difference is that one, when called out for their sin, turned and trusted in the living God to forgive them and the other refused. And that's a dangerous place to be. You know, I'm thinking about this. You know, there's been lots of John the Baptist figures. Those with such amazing mortal, mortal, moral fortitude that they're able to stand and to call people to repentance, do the will of God, even if it means sacrificing their very life. And I feel like I would be doing you a dis disservice if I did not remind you of John Knox. John Knox, the founding father of Presbyterianism, was a Daniel-like figure. He was, he was forthright in his condemnation of all the sinners that he encountered. 
John Calvin called him, finding it, John Calvin described him as the God's firebrand, brother who labors energetically for the faith. Mary, Queen of Scots in Scotland, she said, I am more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than an army of 10,000. John Knox once prayed, give me Scotland or I die. And his prayer was answered within his lifetime. John Knox might not have died by the sword, but it wasn't for lack of danger. He was chased around by people like Herod all his life, for he was not afraid to call out the sins of the rulers who were over the land, sinners who were using their sword to try to kill him. He moved all throughout the European world seeking refuge. And let me ask you, is there anything that you're willing to die for? Is there anything that you're willing to put your life on the line for? At this point, I think that we should all be willing to put our line and put our safety, our comfortable lives at risk, our reputation that we've earned up over years and years of being faithful at our jobs, our investments, our money, why is it, why am I asking you to risk all of that, to live such a dangerous life, full of moral courage to do what is right, to lose a friend by pointing out their sin to them? That's a big ask. I know it is. And I often stumble in that area. And you can be praying for me because pastors are the ones who should get killed first. The reason why I ask you is twofold. It's summed up in the great commandments. Out of love for neighbor. Do you love your neighbor enough that you're willing to risk your property, your reputation, even your friendships with them? So that you might see that they might have life, eternal life, and life in abundance? Are you willing to give it up for the other greatest commandment? For the glory of Christ. Is not Christ worthy of our all? Is not Christ worthy of our sacrifice? Is not Christ worthy that we die on the altar of serving him? Of calling people to follow him because he is worthy. Our Savior was willing to die for us. He was bold to stand up to the devil himself. He feared no man. He called Herod a fox, a crafty fox. He wasn't afraid to insult the rulers and call them out for their sin. Jesus will punish all who pervert justice. He will vindicate all those who have sacrificed their lives for the sake of the cross. He will vindicate all. Every sacrifice that we make, even if our sacrifice is sealed with our blood. The reason why we are called to go and travel down this dangerous road is because for us, it is road of safety. Not from tribulation, 
not from distress, but it's safe from the wrath of God. It's safe because Jesus first walked this dangerous road. It's safe because the Lord Jesus Christ will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would give us strength, strength to be bold, to tell them about their particular sins, particularly should it come up. May your Spirit lead us that we come to them with love, that we would not want to be rejected for being jerks or being just merely offensive, but we would be willing to offend if it means that they will be saved. Lord, may we be willing to have such courage because of all that you've done, because you have lived without, you have lived without comfort, you chose to be rejected and despised by men, all for our salvation. You forsook the riches of this world that was owed to you as the King of kings and Lord of lords for no other reason that you might put down and lay down your life for those you love and that you might put down your life for the glory of the Father. And may your spirit help us to do the same. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.